0: How do we grow? What takes us from simply reading and listening to moving and doing? Into a roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty kind of walk, driven by a desire to grow in grace and humility, digging in faith and on good soil, implanting His Word in our hearts, waking up to life on the other side, where peace-loving wisdom resides persevering through trials and temptation, through death and destruction, giving life breathing water through action and deed, letting it soak in and take deep root in every aspect. That kind of doing changes us. It leads us into true faith, true faith that produces good fruit and changes who we are in Christ, driving us to sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness, to lead with love and give to others generously with mercy, causing us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers
1: so good to have you here today. Those of you here in Bellingham, thanks for being with us. Those of you in Skagit, glad that you're with us today with Pastor Brian and T and the team down there. Those in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God. And as well, those of you who are uh, online with the live stream right now, it's good to have you. As we continue in this series called, series called Doers, and I want to just again uh, emphasize and encourage you to be reading on your own. This is a series through the book of James, but we're just barely on our weekend service, just barely skipping across the surface of this book. So I want to encourage you to continue to read. There's only five chapters in this book. Write down your questions, your insights, the, the way it's impacting you, what God is speaking to you through that. Discuss it in your small groups with your friends, and continue on. Uh, we are looking at this book <clears throat> called James. And James, as we discussed last weekend, was in one sort or another the brother of Jesus. We went into all the different theories on that one. But he was also a leader in the early church. He was the first bishop of the church in Jerusalem. And he writes this letter, and he starts this letter off this way. He just says, James himself, and this is his identifying factor. He says, I'm a servant of God. You see this humility. He says, this is is what, you know, I'm not anything special. I'm just a servant of God. And then he says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is interesting because he doesn't say, who was my brother, you know, and he wasn't always convinced that Jesus was the Lord Christ. Because it wasn't until after the resurrection when Jesus appeared to him that he was convinced this is the Lord. And at this point, he's almost like he's saying, yeah, Jesus was my brother, but that is so eclipsed by this reality that he is the Lord, he is the Messiah, he is the name above all names. And at his name, even I, his brother, will bow the knee and declare that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I write this, he says to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations and greetings. And then he starts off on this letter. It's interesting, not only in the Bible, not only in church history, but out throughout human history, sometimes leaders will get not only their name, but there's a moniker that goes with that. Maybe it's a nickname, or maybe it's a descriptive name. It's their name, and then maybe it's where they're from. It's their name and a character trait. It's their name and something that they have done or accomplished and let's just kind of maybe have a little quiz here to see if you were awake during history class i'll give you the name and then you fill in the moniker just go ahead and shout it out even if you're wrong just go ahead and let's try this for instance attila the that was good That was good alexander the ivan the richard the so you slept through that one richard the lionheart all right let's try to get you back buffy the yeah, all right, okay. So then there's Bob the builder and Thomas the tank engine and those kind of things. All right. Now, in the Bible, there was the same kind of thing. Now, let's see if you were awake in Sunday school. John the? Uriah the? Hittite. <laughs> Some of you really struggled with. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Rahab the prostitute. That's, it's a bummer to be stuck with that one. But anyway, <laughs> James has one of these monikers, and you won't find it in the Bible. But in the writings of the church fathers in early church history, he had a moniker that was given to him as well. James was not only known as the brother of Jesus, James was known as James the Just or James the Righteous. That was his name that was given to him, that people who knew his life, he was given this moniker, he's the one who is just, he is the one who is righteous. What an amazing moniker to have. It makes me think of that verse out of Micah 6.8. It says, this is what the Lord requires of us, to do justly, to love mercy, which James will write about in chapter two, and to walk humbly with your God, which he says in his opening statement, I'm just a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was the embodiment of Micah 6.8. Now, you might say, well, but this moniker was given to him post-mortem, and you know how that goes. Sometimes after someone's dead, they just, people only remember the good. I mean, if, I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral where people are sharing about the deceased, and you're going, really? That, are we at the same funeral? Are we talking about the same guy? Because I remember someone totally different, they just, all oh, this glowing report. Okay, now, granted, he was given this long after he was dead. However, there was something about his life with such an extraordinary character and morals and and integrity and virtue and goodness that he would be given this and even referred to as a leader in the church early on. Paul, the Apostle Paul, has some interactions with James. We'll look at more of that next week. I think that's important. We'll, We'll look at that next week. But when he writes, when Paul writes to the churches in the region of Galatia, he refers to James and he says this about him. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas. Now, I don't want to correct Paul, but shouldn't it be Barnabas and me? I mean, wouldn't that just be the better way to write this? I mean, I'm not a Bible writer. I'm just, and someday Paul will say, anyway. Gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. But he lists these three individuals who are pillars. And some of you are just saying, well, of course, Bob, didn't you sing Peter, James, and John when fishing? And of course those three are pillars. That's not the same James. We talked about this last week. We're not talking about James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, the one of the sons of Thunder. That James had already been martyred. He died somewhere in 42 to 44 um, AD. This is James, the brother of Jesus. And these three are referred to as pillars. Like these guys are the ones that the church is built on. And you look at the list and you say, of course, John is referred to as the disciple that Christ loved. There was a, there was a close connection with Jesus and John. Peter's like the first pope of the church. You know, on this rock, I will build my church, and he hands Peter the keys to the kingdom. And then there's James, the brother of Jesus. And what, we've talked about this before, not always, but most often, the order that something is listed shows an order of prominence, an order of, of, of age and order of importance and james the brother of jesus here is listed first so here's this man with great positional authority in the church but great moral authority as well and as a leader in the church he writes this letter the first book of the bible first book of the new testament to be written he writes this letter to jewish followers after jesus And in this, he wants to see them rooted in their faith. He wants to see them grounded on a a solid foundation to grow in maturity. And this is his his desire and his concern for them. So last week, as we were looking at this, we touched down on that little verse where he says, everyone should be quick to listen, just like our Heavenly Father has a listening ear. Everyone should be slow to speak, just like our Lord Jesus Christ was slow to speak. Everyone should be slow to, to anger, which is a an element of the fruit of the Spirit working in our lives. And then he follows it up and says, because man's anger does not produce the righteous life that God desires. This foundation of a life that that God has created us to live. A life that's new in Christ, but it's a new way of thinking, it's a new perspective, it's a new way of talking, it's a new way of acting, it's it's a new way of interacting, it's a new way of doing our priorities, our finances, our morality, our sexuality, our relationships, everything is new. Because that's the life we were created to live And that's where we're going to pick up today If you have your Bibles, we're still going to be in James chapter 1 We'll we'll get into James chapter 2 a little bit But he says that this doesn't produce the righteous life that God desires Then he says, therefore Therefore, and you can tell that he has the moral authority Because he, he writes this imperative Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent And humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you Now there's some apocryphal stories about James that may or may not be true about his lifestyle and and the the separation that he had from the world. But what we do know is that his character and his virtue was such that he's not just throwing words out here. This is the kind of life that he lives, that he has gotten rid of the moral filth and the evil and the, the prevalence of the world around him. He separates himself from that and humbly accepts the word that has been implanted. And again, he's speaking from experience. He had to eat some humble pie because he spent his whole life saying, yeah, Jesus, you're not, or at least three years, Jesus, you're not who you say you are. And suddenly he had to say, wait a second, I was wrong. Jesus, you are the Lord. And now he's speaking to a Jewish audience who has the Torah, who has the wisdom literature, who has the prophets. He said, these words, as well as the words of Jesus, this truth that's been planted within you, humbly accept that. Let God's word transform you, change you. And then he gets to this point, which is the theme of our, of our whole series in verse 22 when he says, and do not merely listen to the words, word and so deceive yourselves. You know, n- self-deception is maybe the most difficult to recognize. When someone else is trying to pull the wool over our eyes, someone else, we can kind of recognize that a little easier. Self-deception is hard sometimes because we don't want to recognize it. And he says, it is so easy to be deceived we can deceive ourselves you see like when you hear the word and you agree with it and you listen to it and you you believe it and you think well that's good enough you're deceiving yourself you know when you go to church and you listen to a sermon and you read the bible and you go to your small group and you discuss it and listen there is nothing wrong with that But when you say, look at that, I'm good enough. I I get the points. This is all I need. And some of you have this mind, look at me, God. I'm here in church. And the longer Bob goes and the more boring he he is, the more points I get. Like God looks down and says, boy, are you guys, uh, you are saints. I mean, you put up with that week after week. And you're thinking, that's it. I was there. I listened. That's good enough. He says, you have deceived yourself. It's important to study the Bible. I think it's important to hear sermons. I think it's important to read. I think it's important to discuss it in small groups but he says if that's where you stop you've stopped short you've deceived yourselves. do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves and then he gives these four words do what it says that's what we looked at last week that the information is becomes this assimilation which results in transformation it's the application of the word here's the cool thing about this biblical principle Even if you don't believe in God, even if you have, say, like, Christianity is is just, it's a crutch, even if you think Jesus never existed, you can't deny this biblical principle because it applies in every aspect of your life. Think about it. Every aspect of your life, to just listen to the words, to just have the knowledge, doesn't really change anything until you do something with that. Think about it in your financial world. You can graduate from the Financial Peace University, have all the baby steps memorized, know how the snowball effect works. You can understand interest rates. You can understand budgeting, living below your means, you know, the the market and and all kinds of things. in the stock market, you can understand mutual funds. You can understand all of that. You can can teach all of that and still be upside down in your finances, living beyond your means, totally in debt with nothing set aside for the future. You know it. But you're not doing it. And it's worthless. You've deceived yourself. Or or try this one. Maybe some of you are like staring at me like you have no clue what I'm talking about. How about like a diet? You can know all about a diet. You can know about these diets I can't even pronounce the names of. You know, paleo and keto and Atkins and South Beach and weight watchers and Ginny craig and you can tell all about these diets and how many percentage of carbs and fats and proteins you can know all about that while sitting around eating a half a dozen maple bars <laughs> exercise you can tell us the difference between trx and crossfit and free weights and body mass index and thigh masters and sweating to the oldies in your lazy boy See, it applies to every area of your life. Lawn care, car maintenance, dental hygiene, marriage, parenting, leadership, business, and especially in this area of spirituality. That you can know all the right answers. You can have all the knowledge. You can talk, you can teach. But unless you do something about it, it doesn't make any difference. And you've just deceived yourself thinking, I've done enough because I know it. And then he goes on. And he kind of reemphasizes. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says, self-deception, got all the answers, don't have to apply it. I just know all the truth. He says, and he does this illustration, is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And I wonder, when he wrote this, remember, first century, I wonder if this little phrase is kind of almost maybe a shout-out to something they've heard about. The Greek mythology. Some of you are familiar with Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, there was a man named Narcissus. And Narcissus was unbelievably handsome. And he had this this nymph named Echo who was so in love with Narcissus and he had nothing to do with her. Narcissus had an enemy named Nemesis. And Nemesis somehow lured Narcissus to a pool where he could look at his reflection in the water. And when Narcissus saw his reflection and saw how unbelievably handsome this reflection was, this image was. He fell in love with this image in the pool and would not leave it until eventually he died. Okay, maybe not. Some of you are like, I I don't know anything about Greek mythology, but it's that reflection. Okay, some of you were raised in the 70s like me. We'll try this one. Greek mythology's out. In the 70s, you remember Arthur Fonzarelli would look in the mirror to comb his hair, and then he would look and he would say, "E." Like, I don't need to comb my, "E." Well, he says, you know, if we hear the words, but we don't do anything else, it's like looking at ourselves in the mirror, only this time we're not saying, "E- We're doing the rest of the vowels, A, E, I, O, O, and sometimes, Y. We look in the mirror, and we see all this stuff. There's a goober in our eyeball. There's something hanging out our nose. Our hair's a little messed up. Our mascara is running and got a blemish or whatever, some lettuce in our teeth. We see these things. And our attention is drawn to something needs to happen here. And we may even have good intentions. But if we just look at it and say, oh, yeah, e i o u owe you, yeah, why? And then we walk away, he says, nothing changes. It's like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets What he looks like Got the intention Even had the intention But nothing changed Nothing was done about it And he says when God's word Speaks to you in such a way It convicts you It points out an area that you need to surrender An area where God is continuing to redeem An area that needs to be transformed And you say oh yeah yeah I see that I got the attention I see that And you walk away Nothing changes And he goes on in verse 25, he says, but the man who looks intently in the perfect law, not just a passing glance. This is why we want you to study the word of God on your own. This is why we want you in groups that where you studying it together and on a deeper level. It's why we want you at the weekend service, looking intently in the perfect law that gives freedom. Oh, I wish we had time to go into that. But look at this, and continues to do this, continues to look into God's word, continues to look in the truth, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, applying it, He will be blessed in what he does. That there's the result. There's the transformation. Where do you think James came up with this whole concept? I think maybe he got it from his brother. Maybe he remembered some of the teachings of his brother Jesus. Where Jesus preaches this sermon on the mountain, this most profound, amazing sermon, most a life altering, countercultural, counterintuitive sermon. And at the end of it, Jesus said, And anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, not just hears and believes, not just hears and agrees, not just hears and memorizes, but puts them into practice, is like a man who builds his house on a rock. And the storms come and he stands firm. There's another time of the Great Commission, Jesus is giving these parting words, these instructions to his followers. He says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, And teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. What Jesus was saying, and what James picks up on, and he is saying, is that doing makes the difference. That's why, again, we're calling this series Doers. He's saying it's not just about gaining more knowledge and information. Doing makes a difference. Doing brings about the transformation. Doing changes everything. That's when God really begins to work. Verse 27, he says this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Like, you want to know when God says, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I really want. And if it just stopped here, and we we were left to kind of fill this in as an essay question on a test, the, the answers that we would come up with you know, this is the religion that God says is really good, and we'd probably come up with all these list of do's and don'ts. You know, go to church and don't swear as much and kind of keep a curb, this, you know, all these things. Read the Bible, know all the information, and, and that's all good. But, but James says, you know, maybe it's, it's this, and I, and I don't think this is like this narrow, this is the one thing. I think he's saying something like this. Here's what true religion is. How about this? To look after orphans and widows in their distress. Like, it's not just about knowing all the right answers. It's about doing something with what you know. And I think here he's pointing back to to Psalm 68, 5, where it says that, that God is the father to the fatherless and defends the cause of the widows. Like, that's what our Heavenly Father does. So that's what he wants us to do. That he would want us to bring about the kingdom of heaven here on earth that that he would want for us to to restore this shalom this right being this restoration here on this earth and then he says one other thing and we could spend our whole time on this and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world man how graphic is that being polluted by the world to be contaminated by the world to be soiled by the world and again we could come up with all different kinds of ideas of what does that mean and some of us were raised in church where they told us what it meant to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world and all these things we did and we didn't do and all the things the world does and this list and some of you know what i'm talking about it's why you didn't go to a dance it's why you didn't play cards except rook it was weird. It's why you didn't go to the movie house. It's why we didn't get tattoos. All these things, that's, the, that's being polluted by the world. But what, what if? What if he's talking about something that, that's far deeper than that? What if he says that being polluted by the world has to do with your perspective, your heart, your outlook, your attitude, your mindset, your values, your morals, not just this list of these are the things we do and these are the things we don't do, but something deeper than that the source from all of those things. And in the context of what he's preparing to tell them in chapter 2, one of the things I believe that he's talking about here has to do with the social construct, with social distinctions. Remember, they're in the Roman Empire, and in the Roman Empire there's all these rankings and status and honor and dishonor and all that, and I think that's what he's talking about in this sp- specific context don't be like the rest of the world in the way that they put value on certain people. In the Roman Empire, let me give you just a little bit of backstory on this. In the Roman Empire, there were basically two status groups. There was the elite, and there was the non-elite. That was it. And in the elite, this, this tiny little group, of course, you had the emperor. You had senators. You had equestrians, who were basically knights who could afford a horse. And then you had decturians, uh, 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 De- Decurions, dec- like ten, they had ten people underneath them. This was the elite group, and it was usually about ten percent of the Roman Empire. Everyone else was in the non-elite. They might be slaves, they might be freedom men but they were non-elite, and they were referred to as the vulgus, where we get our word, vulgar. It was like these non-elites. It was, it was this, and, I, and they were about ninety-eight percent. I don't know if they had an occupy Rome, but it was the ninety-eight percent. This vulgar group and then there was these rankings and their ways to understand where your status was where you fit in this whole pecking order You ever heard of a article of clothing called a toga? It wasn't just an 80s frat party uniform In the roman empire the toga was a very expensive and very complex piece of clothing In fact anyone who was in the non-elite category There's no way they could ever afford a toga so to wear a toga already put you in the elite status. and then in the area of togas, there were different kinds of togas with different status, togas that were all white, togas with a purple stripe, togas with this and that, all these different ones, and every one of them had these rankings. And in the non-elite, they couldn't afford things like a gold ring, for instance. there's no way they would have the money. For us, a gold ring is really pretty commonplace. but for them, only the elite would have a gold ring. and then it wasn't just what they wore and what they had, it was the, the place of honor that the most important, you know, the, the most valuable people would get invited to the festivals and the events and the sporting things and the in the plays and where they sat in those banquets and those festivities was a ranking of order. The closer you were to the host at a banquet, the closer you were to the front at a at a at a, an event meant there was a, a greater rank. I mean, we have elements of this in our world today a little bit less as far as the social status but when you get on an airplane who sits in the front yeah Yeah, first class yeah last night they said the pilot well well, of course (laughs) that's why they go to church on saturday night i guess (laughs) first class sit in the front it's like they're more important these seats are more expensive and who loads first you know all the precious metals the platinum group the gold group the silver group when you finally get to the tinfoil group that I'm in, you know, we're back there by the bathrooms, and there's this picture of, you know, like the up front and the first. They're more important. They're more valuable. Or you go to a, to a concert even, and it may not be a social status, but the better seats are gonna cost more money. The closer you are to the front, it's gonna cost more money. A sporting event, same thing. Why is it that they always show the front row at a Los Angeles Lakers game? It's always the Lakers. They never do that at the Grizzlies game, do they? It's always the Lakers game. Who gets to sit courtside? It's the rock stars. Jay-Z, Beyonce, they're down there. The movie stars. All the important people on the front. You know where we see this most in our culture today, where you see the most important people? It's at church. They're on the front row. The most spiritual. The most important. You don't know how much they had to pay for these seats. And then when it came to a banquet, you know, if you got invited to a banquet, where you got to sit? And the closer you were to the host, and this made its way even into the non-elite. that they said, well, we can't be a part of the elite, but we'll have our own ranking and our own status in the non-elite. There was a time where Jesus went to a Pharisee's house, and he observed this. Luke chapter 14. When he noticed Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. People are all jockeying for position to show I'm more important. It even made its way into his disciples, some of you are familiar with this story. And they replied, "Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory, the most important spot and the second most important spot. We want that place of honor. We want the rank and we want the status. And you don't have to read very much of Jesus' teaching or watch very much of his life before you begin to understand that he says the way this world operates, with ranks and status and, you know, position, that's not the kingdom of God. Jesus brings this inversion, this subversive kingdom, and he says it's going to be completely different than that in the kingdom. You see this when he teaches, when he says, you know, The class that was like not to be heard from and and had no value at all in their culture. Children, and he says, bring them to me. Unless you become like a little child, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus, what are you talking about? Children are to be seen and not heard. They have no status in our culture. He says, become like a little child. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, who would ever want the poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Jesus would say, the first will be last, and the last will be first. He would come to his disciples and said, the Gentiles lord it over you, but not so with you. If you want to know what true greatness is? Learn to be the servant of all. He would make the statement, if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled, but if you'll humble yourself, you'll be exalted. And Jesus demonstrated this when he washed his disciples' feet. You know, in, in human history, humility was never ever ever seen as a virtue until jesus came along and james heard this from his brother saw it from his brother and he taught this and look how he appeals to this example this teaching this principle these truths from jesus james chapter two verse one he says my brothers as believers in our glorious lord jesus christ You remember the one who turned the whole ranking system upside down. The one who brought this whole status thing and says, we're gonna have none of it. The one who never made social distinctions. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Jesus would make a poor little old widow woman the hero of a story and also offer an invitation to a rich young ruler. These two were about as opposite as it could be and Jesus said, both of them are welcome. He goes to a Samaritan woman who has a very poor past and is living an immoral lifestyle and invites her into the kingdom and sends her off as the first missionary. And he goes to Nathanael, a true Israelite, with whom he says there is nothing false and invites him in as well. They couldn't be more opposite. Jesus said, I don't do social distinctions. I don't do rankings. I don't do the status. He would open his arms and welcome a career criminal in his dying day to be a part of the kingdom. And at the same time, he would point out a Roman centurion who has more faith than all of the Jews in Israel. And James says, you know, my brother, the one who didn't do classes and rankings and stats, I'm appealing to that. You believe in him. It's the words of Jesus. And then he gives these three words, don't show favoritism. One author said, James makes up this word, that before this, there's never found in any other Greek uh, literature this word favoritism. It, it literally means to lift up your face. Hey, you want to be on my team? Hey, you want to sit at my table? Hey, you want to be with us in our club? He says, don't do that. Don't have this favorism, this preferential treatment to one person or to one group or to one set of people, especially at the expense of others, Psychologists will tell you there's a, there's a phenomenon in, in social psychology called the halo effect. And I'm not going to do it justice, but it, it's in essence this that you, it's a, a cognitive bias that you may have um, maybe a, a good first impression about someone in their appearance, and that then kind of bleeds over into where it, in other areas, you think, well, then they must be smart, they must be important, their, their opinion is more valid their jokes are more funny and it's it's just this transfer and there's this like preferential treatment because of who they are who it is or how they look or whatever it might be and in the church we can have this preferential treatment and james says don't show favoritism sometimes we show favoritism the preferential treatment because of someone's status because of their wealth because of where they are in our community Sometimes we do it because of their political stands or leanings Sometimes we do it because of their gender Sometimes we do it because of their nationality Sometimes we do it because of their race and we may be prejudiced for or against them and we show favoritism We may judge for or against them and we show favoritism. We may have you know this, this uh, discrimination for or against them and we show favoritism and James says don't show favoritism Not in the kingdom of God not in the church I'm going to tell you a story And I want to be careful Because I don't want to I don't want to say It's about my dad I don't want to set him up as a saint But I think this illustrates Exactly what James is talking about My dad was a pastor And in 1960 He was a young pastor He was 25 years old at the time had a wife That's my mom And a little baby Newborn baby My sister And they moved They got a call to be a pastor Of a little church In a little town in Louisiana In 1960 They moved to Ruston, Louisiana and they spent the next 10 years there. In 1960, I just want to kind of set the stage for this, 1960, Deep South, 60s, little town, Ruston had 14,000 people as a population in 1960. When we moved away in 1970, it had 17,000 people population. Now, I don't want to single-handedly take it, you know, the credit for this, but on June 23rd, 1963, I helped that growth. (laughs) So I was raised in the Deep South. I was raised with grits. Black-eyed peas and cornbread, fried okra, catfish and hush puppies, fried chicken made in an iron skillet with a bunch of Crisco, gravy over everything. Can I get an amen? Heart attack. The thing that put Rustin, Louisiana, this tiny little town, Dad was pastor of this tiny little church on, on their biggest Easter. I think they had maybe 110 people. The thing that put Rustin on the map was Louisiana Tech University. So, I mean, it's still drawn a blank. Phil Robertson from Duck Dynasty played football there in the 60s. He was a quarterback. In fact, he started in front of another quarterback named Terry Bradshaw. Terry Bradshaw played quarterback there in the late 60s. Later, Carl Malone played basketball there. That's what put them on the map. And the interesting thing is as students would come and register every fall at Louisiana Tech University, they would fill out the registration, and one of the lines in there, they would ask, what is your religious or denominational preference? And then they would take that, and then they would take that information and give it to pastors around town. The university would do this. These kids are Baptists, a lot of Baptists in the South. These kids are Methodists. These kids are Presbyterian. And occasionally my dad would get one of these. And there was a young man, an athlete, named Willie Odom. He had been recruited from Missouri to play basketball at Tech. A young black athlete, Willie Odom. And on this registration, he put down Church of God. And so that information was given to my dad. And dad got this, William Odom. So he went to the college, went to the dorm. Knocked on the door. Some of you remember my dad. is not, not a tall man. Willie came to the door, and dad looked at him, introduced himself, said, my name is Gerald Marvel. I'm the pastor of the Church of God. And it says here that, that that is what you would put down as your denominational preference, and so they got to talking, and he said, and, and I would like to invite you to church if you, you want to come, and, and Willie said, like, really? I'm welcome at your church. Remember, this is a deep south, 60s, black athlete. My dad's a white man. He says, I'm welcome at your church. My dad said, absolutely. He said, can I bring friends? Dad said, absolutely. So that next Sunday, Willie Odom and his friend, roommate George, and two girls, I don't know if they were dating them, but two girls came, and in a small little white church with 100 people, when four black uh, college students that are very tall come in, it doesn't go unnoticed. (laughs) And they came in, and they sat down, And when they sat down in church that morning There was a long-standing couple member of that church That stood up and walked out And never came back to that church except for one funeral And so willie and his friends came to church and in a small town like that word spread very quickly And that week when my dad went to the bank to make a deposit People began talking Pastor marvel we heard what happened at your church last week And I asked my mom And so if you believe this next part is a little sensational Then my mom's lying But this is what she told me I don't know why she would make this up That there was another pastor in town That approached my dad And said That would never be allowed in my church I would never have that If they came into our church They would be escorted out And he said And if there was any problems I keep a pistol in the pulpit And they would be escorted out at gunpoint and my dad caught a lot of heat but willie and his friends were welcome every sunday and they kept coming that fall at homecoming willie wanted to take his date on this homecoming deal and we had this pontiac catalina got a car it's as big as a whale and it's about to set sail this thing was enormous And my dad handed the keys to Willie and said, why don't you use my car for your day at homecoming? And my dad caught a lot of heat for that. And later in the year, they had Mom's Weekend, and Willie came to my dad and says, hey, my mom's got a bus ticket. She's coming down from Missouri for Mom's Weekend. Can you help me find a place for her to stay? And my dad said, she'll stay at our house. He said, but my little brother's coming. He said, he'll stay at our house. And they came and they stayed at our house and some of the neighbors were talking and after they left, they were not real happy with my dad. My dad wasn't perfect. But the things that were said about him and Willie and the way that he stood for the truth, that Willie's my brother in Christ and this is the church and we don't operate like the rest of the world. We don't have the social distinctions. It's the kingdom of God. And I heard that story again a couple of weeks ago, and I thought I so, I so want to be more like my dad because he so wanted to be more like Jesus. I don't want to be polluted by the way the world says this is how we operate. I don't want to be polluted by a nation that says this is how we're to divide ourselves. I don't want to make distinctions. I don't want favoritism. And I think what James is saying is, be looking at everyone through the eyes of Jesus. Look at everyone to see them the way that he sees them. Treat them the way he would treat them. Operate the way Jesus did, who didn't have social classes and distinctions and rankings. Who opened up his arms and welcomed anyone into the kingdom of God. There's a time when the Pharisees Pharisees were always trying to back Jesus into a corner. In a time where it wasn't working, so they, they actually teamed up with a group of people they didn't like very much with a common enemy being Jesus. And it's so easy to read this and, and bypass one little sentence that's so important. It says this. They sent their disciples, and the Pharisees to him, along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Watch this. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. It doesn't matter their education. It doesn't matter their status. It doesn't matter their race. It doesn't matter where they are in the social order. It doesn't matter with their wealth. It doesn't matter. You pay no attention to that. All you see is people who are created in the image of the Father that he loves so much. In that time where Jesus was noticing all these people jockeying for position at the banquet, he says this, the parable, and at the end of it, and I think this is a microcosm of the kingdom of God, he says, but when you give a banquet, like the table of the kingdom of God, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. See, here's what it means to look at people the way Jesus did. If they're Christians, they have value, even if they are annoying Christians. Even if they're immature Christians, they have value because Christ lives in them. That's what gives them value. If they're not Christians, they have value because Christ died for them. You see, it's not about us and about our ranking and about our morality, it's about Christ. That's what gives someone value. Christ lives in them, Christ dies for them. They're that important. The Apostle Paul, again, he says this, uh, in Romans, he says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. And I think maybe when, when he writes this, he thinks of his own life. Think about the, the Apostle Paul when he was still Saul of Tarsus, when Jesus accepted him. He was an egotistical, pride filled, judgmental, self righteous uh, Pharisee who was destructive in trying to persecute the church, and Christ accepted him. Think about how you were when Christ accepted you. Did you have it all together? Were all the areas of your life redeemed? Were you perfect? Were you worthy of being accepted? Accept others just as Christ accepted you. And remember, James is writing to this Jewish audience, and to the Jewish audience, there was nothing more important than keeping the law, especially those Ten Commandments. And he says to them about this whole favoritism thing says, if you do this, this is how serious it is. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Just like committing adultery. Just like committing murder. Just like falling prey to idolatry. It's that serious. Paul writes this about our Heavenly Father in Romans. For God does not show favoritism. And I suppose you could build a case for why it is that God doesn't show favoritism this way. Because every single one of us have sinned. Every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, in our own efforts, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. There's not a one of us that is qualified to be God's favorite. That's why he doesn't show favoritism. None of us are worthy to be his favorite. You could build that case. Or... Or, maybe God doesn't show favoritism, because maybe, just maybe, God only has favorites. And in the infinite goodness of our God, he can say, you are my favorite, not to the exclusion or the expense of anyone else. And you are my favorite, not diminishing my favor for her. And you are my favorite, and they are my favorite, I only have favorites they're all my favorite james quotes his brother jesus who quotes the book of leviticus and he says this if you really keep the royal law i love that the royal this kingly royal law found in scripture love your neighbor as yourself you are doing right don't merely listen to the words and so deceive yourselves do what it says don't show favoritism Love your neighbor as yourself. Because I'm going to stop there. If you can't find an application from our time today, I don't think that's my fault. Because <laughs> God's word is extremely clear on this one. Don't merely listen to the words. Do what it says.